Our scripture reading this morning is 1 Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 9. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the thing of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. 3,000 talents of gold, the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver, who then will willing, offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord. Then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Um, I'm going to start with a review. A few moments ago, we heard from Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. There's a danger with something that's abundant. The danger is you take it for granted, right? The love and the mercy and the grace of the Lord is abundant. Let's never forget that. Those of you who live in Germantown have uh, realized that just because something's abundant and flowing doesn't always mean it will stay that way. Fortunately, the love, the steadfast love of the Lord is never corrupted. It's never diminished. It's never polluted. And if the steadfast love of the Lord and the mercies of the Lord are continuous, if they are new every morning, shouldn't our worship as the people of God be continuous? Shouldn't His faithfulness be met by our continual worship? 
And, and what I want to talk to you about today is having a heart for worship. And the danger, and it's a, a real danger uh, in the South in particular, and at First of Anne specifically, is that our worship begins to turn in on itself. Uh, that because we have, you know, wonderful music, beautiful accompaniment, great singers, uh, that we enjoy that and find pleasure in that and begin to think that our, our worship and our praise is centered upon how much I really enjoy the wonderful music that comes up. We're called to, to something bigger than that. We're called to something grander than that. We're, our worship should never turn in on itself, but always be turned upward towards God and His glory. And what I'm going to call you to today is to have a heart like David's heart. And one of the things we see in this passage is that his vision for worship goes beyond himself. It goes not only beyond himself, but it goes beyond his lifetime. And it goes beyond his own generation. I, I thought, by the way, that I was picking a really uh, neat, obscure passage that, you know, I could uh, impress some people with, and then I, two people in the hallway came up to me and they said, oh, I just love this passage. I'm so glad you're teaching it. And I thought, well, uh, that's great because it means we already have people who are passionate about this, who are e excited about us, about worshiping God, and not only worshiping God, but giving self-sacrificially for the worship of God in the next generation. That's what we see modeled in this passage. It's what we see David passionate about. And, and one of the things I, I want to tell you is this isn't the only possible response David could have. Because if you remember the book of Chronicles, there, there's a, a scent of, of disappointment when it comes to the temple in David, isn't there? David earlier uh, comes and he, he realizes, the Lord's given me peace. The Lord has established my house. I'm living in a palace, yet the Ark of the Covenant is going around in a tent. He says, I'll, I'll build a house for the Lord. He had a desire to build a permanent place of worship for the Lord God in the land that God had given them. And then the prophet comes to him and says, that's not going to be your job. You don't get to do that. You're a man of war, and it's going to come to your son who will be a man of peace who gets to build the house of God. You know, a, a very important thing for us is, what do we do when God tells us no? How do you respond when there's something you've been praying for, when there's something you've been longing for, when there's something you've been desiring? And the Lord gives an answer, and it's a clear answer. And the answer is no. How do you respond to that? 
We'll look at that question a, a little later, but I, I hope to draw some of you back in because uh, the minute you say, hey, my goal in, in the next 40 minutes is to convince you to give self-sacrificially for the worship of God in the next generation, some, some people kind of shut down. Some people get amped up, but other people shut down, and you, some of you shut down because uh, it's like, oh, great, another, another giving message, right? Well, I have good news for you. The, the good news is God isn't after your money. That's the good news. God isn't after your money. He's after much more than that, though. God isn't after your money. He's not a pauper looking for a handout. He's not in dire financial straits just thinking, oh, gosh, how can I get them to cut that check? He's not after your money, but he is after much more than that. He's after you. He's after all of you. He's after your whole entire being, not just a, a part of your life, not just one particular area, not just one particular percentage or portion of your life. He's after you and he's after your whole being. He's not after you for a short period of time. He's after you for eternity. And for those of you who know God, and for those of you who love God, it's a delight to give not just of our tithes and offering, not just of our time, but to give all of ourselves to Him. I fear often in our day and age, we're entering into an age of half-hearted Christianity where as long as I can limit what I give, limit what I offer, limit what I present to God, and I can hold back a portion for myself, it'll be all right. Christianity will be manageable. That's not what we're called to. In fact, David, in the chapter before the, the one that we're looking at today. He commissions Solomon, and in his commission of Solomon, he tells him, he charges him, he says, and you, Solomon, my son, know the Lord God of your fathers and serve him with a whole heart and a, with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. David's exhorting Solomon, don't, don't just give back a part, don't just give a part of your heart. Don't hold back some of it. Don't serve him with a divided mind. Serve him with a mind that has its will set upon the plans and purposes of God and his worship. Now, maybe it wasn't the giving part that turned you off when I said I want to talk today about giving self-sacrificially for the worship of God in the next generation. Maybe it's the next generation part. Maybe you thought, didn't we just talk about that last week? Well, the bad news is 
that the scripture asks you to do much more than just give to the next generation. It asks you to love them. It asks you to care for them. You know, a lot of times we, we think of the commands of Scripture and we think of the command to love our neighbor and we think about that in terms of geographical space and physical reality. Okay, we need to love our local neighbors. So we'll go talk to Stephen Yo and figure out how can we serve here locally? How can we reach our neighbors and our neighborhoods? And then you think, well, we also need to love our neighbors globally. You go talk to Jim Pendleton. What trips can I go on? What missionaries can I support so that the word of God might go forth and that he might be worshipped among all the nations? But the call to love our neighbors isn't just with relation to space. It's with relation to time as well. The first of Anne prides itself upon being a multi-generational church, loving our neighbor also is a call to love those in the generations beside us, to love and honor and respect those who have gone before us. You notice that in David's call to Solomon and his commissioning to him. He says, and you, Solomon, know the God of your father. David wants him to respect and honor what he has been given and has received. By the way, every blessing that we've received from a previous generation ought to be something we pay to, towards the next generation with interest. And if you've gone here, there's so much richness in the worship and the word that has been passed down in this place. You're honoring those who've gone before you and, and loving them. Not only just loving the generation that's come before us, but loving the generation that is coming after us or will come after us, even to a generation not yet born. Do you love them? We, we live, by the way, in a world that is creating increasing hostility and animosity between the generations. Do you notice that? That's one of the reasons I had to get off of Facebook. I just saw people hating on other generations. Sometimes the old hating on the young. Sometimes the young hating on their elders. We're, that's not what Christians are called to do. We are called to love one another. That includes our physical neighbors. It includes our generational neighbors. So in this command where, and in the example of David, we have someone who loves the Lord his God and longs to see the next generation worship him. I said God's not just after your money. He's after you. He's after all of you, your whole being. He's after your heart. He's after your mind. He's after your soul. He's after your strength. 
Does he have it? Are you giving it to him? Or are you withholding? One of the ways we, we show our honor to God is passing on the worship and the glory of his name to the next generation. Uh, my, my hope for my kids, maybe one day my grandkids, is that their faith and their worship would be stronger, would be fuller, would be more beautiful, would be more glorious than anything in my generation. I, I want them to go further than where we've gone. David didn't have to have the response he had to the bad news. The bad news is, hey, you, you don't get to build the temple for the Lord. He, he could have responded all sorts of ways. You know, we live in a world that, that tells us that our glory, our pleasure, our comfort are the most important things, and that everything you work for, everything you do ought to be geared around getting yourself more honor, more comfort, more calm. David might have said, well, God, you told me no. I, I guess it's the next guy's job. He, he could have sunk into bitterness. And why, why can't I build the temple? Yeah, there's, there's blood on my hands, but I, w I was called by God to drive out those of his enemies. He could have become lazy. All right, it's next generation's job. I get to kick up my sh feet, enjoy my retirement, and wait for the next generation to take over. He might have said, okay, well, the temple is Solomon's responsibility. In my generation, we're here in the tabernacle, so I'm going to make the tabernacle really nice. I'm going to make sure while I'm worshiping that things are good where I am and with what I get to enjoy. He might have been worried about Solomon's accomplishments overshadowing his own. Oh, man, this, this, this means that he might have a greater legacy than me. He could have despaired. He could have wallowed in self-pity. But that's not the response we see here. We, we see instead David act as a man who has a vision for the worship of God beyond his own generation. This shows, by the way, that his worship is about what God gets out of the worship experience, not what he gets out of the worship experience. His ultimate joy and pleasure is not in the type of worship he gets to enjoy for himself. His ultimate joy and pleasure is that God receives the worship and the praise and the glory that is due his name. By the way, when that becomes our passion, we have a purpose that exceeds our lifetime. Isn't that wonderful? 
that you never get to a point and think, well, I've done my job. I've got nothing left to do. No, we, our purpose continues. Um, there was a tour I got to go on of England, and part of the tour was going around and seeing different cathedrals. These beautiful buildings uh, built out of stone, and as a kid I was just impressed at how they built these things. You know, without the advantage of hydraulics, without Barnhart cranes to help them out. That they, they built these giant places of worship out of stone, and I remember touring one of them, and they talked about uh, this was longer than normal, but in one of the cathedrals we toured, they said it took 120 years to finish the cathedral. Now, how many of us would like to start a building campaign that wraps up in 2143? But there's a beauty to that, isn't it? That I'm, I'm going to start something that will hopefully bring God glory and honor to His name. And, you know, I'm not going to enjoy it. My children aren't going to enjoy it. My grandchildren might not even enjoy it. Maybe, maybe once we're getting to the great-grandchildren, maybe they'll get to see it completed. Maybe they'll get to participate in the worship there. Saints, our field of vision is too narrow. Our time frames are too short. We need to gain a vision of worship of the eternal God that goes beyond the short blips of our lifetime on earth. Now, in order to accomplish this, you've got to have a level of passion. You've got to have a level of enthusiasm. You've got to have a whole heart and a focused mind. You, you know, I think of the old definition of passion, um, because we can use that term, and it can mean different things. You know, you can say, I'm, I'm passionate about college sports, and what that means is you create a seven-layered bean dip and yell at the TV. <laughs> but, but the old definition of passion has to do with suffering. If you think of the film, The, the Passion of the Christ… What's that about? Well, it's, it's not necessarily Jesus getting excited about something. It's about His suffering on the road to the cross and on the cross. Passion is that for which we are willing to suffer. And by the way, most people are willing to suffer for something. Some people might, it might be their job. They're wearing, willing to work the late nights. They're willing to stay up. They're willing to sacrifice time with family because they are passionate about their business or moving up the corporate ladder. Some might be passionate about physical health. And you might spend time suffering in the gym. 
If you're passionate about your looks, you might even go and have painful surgery to improve upon some defects. These are common forms of suffering or passion in our day. What are you passionate about? What are the things for which you're willing to suffer? In this passage, we have David leading by example in giving generously to the temple. He is poorer so that the house of God might be richer. Uh, This is not, by the way, the first time David makes an offering to the house of the Lord. 1 Chronicles 22, he gives lavishly and abundantly. We believe that in that passage he's giving out of the nation of Israel's national coffers. This time he's saying, this is my own personal money that I'm giving. We see him giving generously and abundantly. Um, By the way, this is… Well, we'll we'll put it this way. In, In the offering for the house of the Lord, a talent is about 75 pounds. So, so think about, this is more math than I'm capable of, but 75 talents times 3,000, that's how many pounds of gold. That's a lot of gold. 75 times 7,000, that's the refined silver. That's a lot of silver. We, we see also in First Chronicles 22 that not only is he gathering the supplies so that when the work starts that Solomon will be prepared, he's also preparing people. He's gathering craftsmen around so that there are carpenters. He's grab, gathering stone cutters and masons together so that when the work starts, Solomon will be well supplied and well prepared for the work that is ahead of him, for the great works, for the eternal works, require much effort and much sacrifice. Uh, uh, There's another story from the life of David that also shows the importance of uh, passion and the importance of giving sacrificially. And it's in a passage where David is wanting to make an offer and a sacrifice to the Lord, and somebody's trying to give him the sheep. They're saying, hey, look, you're, you're the king. Uh, you're making sacrifices to God. Here, take these and offer them. Give them to you for free. And David says, no, I, I will not give God that which cost me nothing. Part of the value of it, part of the worship of it is by giving something to God that is of value to me. How do I show that it's valuable to me? Because it cost me something. I I don't want God to just have the scraps, the leftovers of my life, my money, my time. We didn't want to give him the first fruits. We want to give him the best things. 
We want to give him the costly things, the beautiful things, the glorious things. Why? Because he's worthy of those things. What do we offer God? Do we have a passion for the worship of God? I got too much to say in too little time. (laughs) The way this plays out in our day and age as New Testament believers is different than the way it plays out in David's day. David was working on building a place for the worship of God in the next generation. We ought to be working not to build a place, but to build a people who are passionate about the worship of God. I believe you talked last week about that. For he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Jobs to train the next generation. Our, our job is to model what true sacrificial worship looks like and to train the gener- next generation up for it. And when the time is right, to hand things off to them. By the way, it's a lot scarier handing things off if you haven't trained them. If you haven't been training them and then you're thinking, hey, we've built this wonderful worship, we've, we've, we've built these wonderful places, we have these wonderful systems built in which to, to minister and to do missions and to do and engage in this work, who are we going to give it to? And you realize you haven't trained, you haven't raised up, you haven't tested, you haven't encouraged You haven't strengthened those who will take it over. It makes that transition a bit more nerve-wracking. And for all of us, there's a clock going, isn't there? Until the day of our death. Are we training up and raising up the next generation to worship God in spirit and in truth while we still have time left? David draws others into the task with him. David could have called a tax for the temple. That's not what he does. He instead says, look, this is what I'm giving because God is worthy of worship in the next generation because the Lord deserves to have a house where people gather to glorify and honor and praise and give him thanks. Here's what I'm giving. Who will join with me? By the way, that's one of the ways you find out who leaders are. The leaders are the ones who jump in. Say, yeah, we want to give to that. Yeah, we want to be a part of that. And we see David then give all the praise praise and glory back to God. He says, Therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and all that is in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand 
our power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given from of our, your own, we have given you. You hear what he's saying. Everything we ha- have offered, everything that we've given away are things that you have first given to us. We thank you that you have given to us in such a way that we might be giving, able to give to others. We thank you and we praise you for that. we have a much greater reason to worship than David. The precious things in this passage are gold and silver and bronze and iron and stones of various kinds. Scripture tells us we've not been redeemed by gold or silver. We've been redeemed by something much greater than that. A reminder of it is sitting on this table before you. We've been redeemed by the body of Christ broken for us. We've been redeemed by the blood of Christ spilled for us. Why? That we might be a people who can enter into the presence of God and praise his name for what he's done. The feast before you is a reminder of what he's given and a reminder that we ought to be continuously praising him for the mercies that are poured out day after day, year after year, generation after generation until Christ comes to claim what is is his own. Are you willing to sacrifice for that reality? Or are you willing to worship in such a way that takes risks? And I mentioned, he's not after your money. He's after all of you. That might include your money. You might be withholding financially. There might be more that you could give. You might be withholding socially. You might know that in your work, if you make a stand for Christ, it's going to cost you. You're hiding back a little bit. Take risks for God. He's worth it. I, I, I was thinking back, some of the most wonderful experiences of worship, some of the greatest spiritual growth that's occurred in my life has occurred in situations where I look around and wonder, what am I doing here? I remember sitting on an airplane flying to speak to a group of people I had never met. I had not even spoken to people from this people group before, and I was going in to teach them. I was tired, and I was sitting there thinking, uh, once the calm of a transatlantic flight sat, sunk in, I thought, what am I doing? 
Where am I going? What's the point of this? Is there going to be any fruit to this? And then I was leaving. I said, oh, that's why. Thank you, Lord, for putting me in, in that circumstance. And You know, one of the sad things, sorry, I'm jumping around here at the end. One of the sad things I think about is that as we toured those cathedrals, those beautiful monumental buildings built for the glory of God, is that they were empty. They were no longer places of worship. They were museums. They were tourist destinations. Why? Because at some point, one generation failed to pass on a passion, a self-sacrificial passion for the worship of God to the next generation. I think of where I landed on that plane ride, when the place where I landed, there were a group of believers that were meeting for worship. They were meeting in an apartment that was not built for the number of people who were meeting in it. They were from a persecuted people group, one of the most persecuted people group in the world. They were in a country that was opposed to Christianity. And as I was coming into that room, one of the things I was thinking in my mind is, I wonder how loud they're going to be. We're in an apartment complex. There's apartments below, beside, and underneath. Do you know what I heard in that room? I heard passion for the praise and glory of God that had been passed on to another generation. Our goal may not to be to rebuild cathedrals, but to build up a generation whose worship and praise of the Almighty God puts those cathedrals to shame. Our God is worthy of it. Our God deserves it. Let us love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. and love our neighbor, our generational neighbor, sacrificially setting them up to successfully worship the eternally faithful God of the universe in an increasingly hostile culture. Let us pray and then be reminded of the faithfulness, the goodness, the greatness of Christ in His body and blood. Lord, you're worthy of all glory and praise and honor now and forevermore. Lord, you have blessed us with a short time upon our earth. Lord, you have blessed us with the resources that you have given us. Lord, you have blessed us with an opportunity to self-sacrificially pour ourselves out to the next generation that you may not lack praise and honor and glory in the next generation. Lord, may we be diligent and faithful and fruitful in seeing others come to love you and praise you and worship you. All praise and glory and honor be to your name 
now and forevermore. Amen.